Let's begin by reading the book of Acts chapter 8. We're going to read beginning in verse 26 and then to the end of the chapter. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Father, we come to you this morning with very glad hearts and excited hearts. We're anticipating your ministry in our hearts and lives this morning, and we know that your word doesn't go out without accomplishing the purpose for which you send it. And so we're thanking you in advance for this divine appointment that we're having this morning. And God, we're asking that every aspect of what you want to accomplish in our lives and through our lives would be finished and completed in the way that you want it to happen. And so here we are, Lord. You're, you're the teacher. We're the pupils. And we come with a desire to be transformed into the likeness of Christ and a desire to be found even more useful and more beneficial to you than ever before as we yield our lives and surrender everything to you for your service and your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Over the years, I have come to the conclusion that there is no such thing as a coincidence for a man or a woman whose life is completely yielded and available to God. Every conversation, every chance meeting, every phone call, every opportunity to serve is divinely appointed by God. Why do I believe those things? Well, I believe them because that's what the Bible teaches. There's a passage in Acts 17.26 that God says he actually has appointed the exact time in human history and the exact place where we should live. So God has actually geographically put you where he wants you on the map. How did he do it? I don't have a clue. All I know is he's sovereign and his word says that he has positioned you strategically for his purposes in the area, the neighborhood, the vocation, the workplace, the friends, the family, all of those things have been sovereignly designed by God. 
But God goes farther than that because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. So we've got God saying, on the one hand, that he's actually positioned you strategically in human history and the timeline and the location where you live. And he says, before time began, he has designed and created certain good works for you to walk in long before you were even born. He created those for his glory and for your enjoyment, that you might participate with him in his divine work. So what this means to me is that God has a plan for your life. The fact that you're here this morning, I have every confidence without any wavering of doubt whatsoever that this is a divine appointment that you're here on this property today and that we're part of the gathered church to worship God today and that God has a purpose and a plan for your afternoon and those conversations that you're going to have and those contacts that you're going to have, the encounters, the, the opportunities that you're going to have are all designed by God to participate in essence in his divine nature through being a part of the advancement of God's purpose in the world. So every day, you and I are left with a choice to either participate in these exciting intersections of, of the human and divine, or we can ignore them, either through ignorance or disobedience. But my prayer today as we go through this text, which is really a wonderful example of this teaching and uh, the power of a divine appointment, as we look at the life of Philip and, and the eunuch, I'm praying that God is gonna, is gonna open our eyes and open my eyes and open your eyes so that you'll never look at uh, your conversations the same way again. You'll never think about a phone call uh, when you have the, the, the handset to your head. You'll never think of it just as a phone call again. You'll never think of running into somebody at a store here on the island or wherever you live and just think, oh, what a coincidence. But you'll realize that God has strategically placed you in human history, geographically, and even so much so that he's actually got good works for you to walk in so that you'll realize that your life can be an absolute nonstop interaction with the miraculous if you're willing to acknowledge it and willing to recognize it. You'll remember from our study of, um, of the book of Acts so far that Philip was one of the seven that was chosen. It was quite an honor. There were somewhere between 20 and 30,000 converts to Christ in those few short weeks after Pentecost. And out of all of those converts, Philip was one of the ones that was chosen. Stephen, of course, was chosen. Stephen was martyred and died. And the result was is that the church was scattered and Philip was scattered as well. And he went to Samaria where the Bible tells us that he preached the gospel and did many miraculous signs and wonders with remarkable results because a revival broke out in Samaria and a large number of Samaritans came to Christ. And that's where we are now up until this text. And suddenly, in verse 26, the Bible says that an angel of the Lord came to Philip. You know, angels have a very active role in the life of a believer. Uh, we know from Matthew 18.10 that every believer has an angel assigned to him or her. I love that. I was thinking about that the other day and I was thinking all of the wonderful comforts I have in Christ in terms of encouragement and support and help from, from God and from the Son and from the Spirit and now from angels because the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that Jesus Christ is interceding for us right now. So there's a divine appointment going on even in the heavenly realm because as you're sitting here, Jesus is praying for you. I don't know what he's praying for you in particular, 
but I know where his heart's at. He wants you to be everything he's called you to be. And the Holy Spirit is also interceding for you and for your benefit. And now the text also tells us as we're looking at this angel, angelic encounter with Philip is that angels are assigned to each one of us. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure my angel has been busier than most just because I'm kind of a rascal. I don't know. I was telling somebody before the service, I don't know why God chose me to be a pastor. I'm like always in a little bit of trouble on the edge, you know, but I, I'm just kind of a rascal boy, you know. I mean, that's how I was growing up and I'm still kind of that way, but God is tempering that in my life. Uh, but I love to have a great time and my angel has been quite busy over the years. But I love the, the knowledge that I've got an angelic presence that's, around my life, surrounding me, protecting me, and working for my benefit in my walk with God. That's what the Bible says, Hebrews 1.14, that angels are sent to minister to those who will inherit eternal life, that angels encamp around and guard us, Psalm 34, and Psalm 119, and Psalm 91, that angels actually fight for us, 2 Kings chapter 6. And so an angel appears to Philip to benefit him. Maybe it was his angel. Maybe it wasn't just some angel, but maybe this was the angel that was assigned to Philip. And in some way, we're not told exactly how, but this angel communicated some very important instructions to Philip. And he appeared to him and said, I want you to go south, Philip, to a desert road, a road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, a desert road means a desolate wilderness. There were two roads, as we know from history, that went from Jerusalem to Gaza. And the one that the angel was instructing Philip to go on was the less traveled road. It was kind of a road that not a lot of people went on. And so the angel instructs him to leave, which from a human standpoint is illogical, untimely, doesn't make any sense. Why would God call an evangelist like Philip away from an incredibly explosive fruitful revival that's taking place in Samaria and send him off to some desert area where hardly anyone even travels on the road. The thing I'm amazed by, Philip, that's uh, kind of you have to read between the lines a little bit here, but the thing that I'm amazed by, Philip, is that you'll notice as we go through this text is never once does he argue. Never once does he offer his suggestions. Never once does he propose a better option Never once does he hesitate, but he simply obeys everything that he's instructed to do. And he's got several instructions that are given to him in this particular text. One of the things that uh, came to my mind as I was thinking about this desert road, and uh, I was reminded of Isaiah 43, 19. We're actually going to be talking about Isaiah quite a bit today because that's the text the eunuch was considering as he was journeying in his chariot. But in Isaiah 43, 19, uh, the Lord says, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And unbeknownst to Philip and the eunuch, the water of Jesus Christ, the living water of our risen Savior was about to be poured out in the dry places, in the arid places, in a place that you wouldn't expect because God had a divine appointment for these two men to meet. Well, the Bible tells us in verse 27 that Philip obeyed and he started out right away. It's just like it just says, okay, he started out. The command came and Philip started out. I, I just, I'm, I'm thinking about Abraham. Do you remember the story of Abraham in Genesis? God meets him, comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your father and your mother and everything familiar, your, your people, your flocks, everything. I just want you to go. I want you to follow me. 
And he didn't even tell him where he was going. And Abraham just got up and left. It's an amazing story. And so here, thousands of years later, we find that Philip is a man of like kind heart where he simply hears the voice of God and immediately obeys. And one of the things that kind of came to my mind as I was thinking about this is that how important it is for us to be a people that obey God. The Bible talks about it continually, repeatedly. The importance of a man or woman that actually claims the name of Christ and says, you are my Lord, is a man or woman that immediately obeys the instructions and commands of God. But we don't always do that, do we? I've had my times of negotiating with God, have you? Have you ever kind of dug your heels in and said, I'm not quite sure that that's the good plan, you know? That's not going to work out. That has no hope. That's a desert wasteland. I don't want to go there. Well, the Bible is filled with God's will and purposes for us. You may never have an angel actually audibly speak to you, but you have the Holy Spirit of God who has recorded the heart of God, the plan of God, the purposes of God in the text of this book. And what his command to us is very simple, is I want you to obey it. I don't care if it doesn't make sense in your perception and your ideas right now. I want you to live according to this word. Philip was such a man, and he simply obeyed. Now, I want to share something about this, because when I look at Philip's life, I look at a life of fruit, I look at a life of joy, I look at a life of excitement, I look at a life of adventure. That's what I see in Philip's life. Philip was a man that was full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of loving kindness, and full of the power of God, and the result was fruit. So I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, I want to live that kind of a life. Well, if you want that kind of a life, then one of the fundamental principles that is found in this text is that he lived a life of obedience. So it's not for me as the servant to question the master's command. My privilege and your privilege is to simply obey and then watch the power of God to turn a walk in the wilderness into a divine appointment. The Bible is really filled with uh, stories of men and women that were asked to do some pretty unusual things. We've already talked about Abraham being asked to leave mother, father, country, family. What about Noah building a boat before there was even rain? Working on it a hundred years, that was a pretty foolish thing to, to follow a command on that kind of, a, of, a, of an issue. And yet he did it willingly and then of course God brought rain. Moses stood up to Pharaoh, very powerful leader of the world at that time. Gideon went to war against 10,000 with 300 men. And then I think about Peter getting out of the boat and walking on water. The, the Bible is filled with stories of men and women who took God at his word, didn't ask questions, and simply obeyed, and then entered into the realm of the supernatural and entered into the realm of divine appointments. One of the principles that I want to share with you right now is that if you want to live a life of miraculous, and I'm not talking about necessarily, you know, the supernatural signs, but the divine appointment, seeing God use you, seeing his, his work and his handiwork through your life, having interactions that are life-changing for you and for people around you, then you've got to understand, I have to understand that I've got to expect to be asked to do things that sometimes don't make complete sense to me, but by faith, I know the character and nature of God, and so I trust him anyway. And then God meets me in the desert. That's what I found. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's the experience of Philip. 
here in this text. Well, as he's walking along this road, and I don't know what Philip's heart was. Maybe he was thinking to himself, I wonder how God is going to do this. What has God got me out here for? Uh, it might have been that he had every confidence that he was going to meet someone there. I don't know what he was thinking, but I do know that he was given a command by the angel and he immediately obeyed and he went out into this desert road and was walking along when he met an Ethiopian man in a chariot. And he was described as several things, were five qualities or five issues about his life that are revealed in this text. Number one, he was a eunuch. A eunuch was someone that was castrated, impotent, or unmarried. We have a kind of a description of that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. But oftentimes a man would actually become a eunuch because of his position. Now this man, we're going to discover, happens to be the treasurer, the personal treasurer for Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And by virtue of that position, the king would make sure that all of the men that were in her cadre of help and in her administration were castrated. Because one of the ways that he had to defend his position as king is to make sure that nobody could sleep with his wife. And so that was just kind of part and parcel of that position that he had. And so it was a very wonderful position for him. It was a very um, uh, admirable position. It was a position of great authority and power. He was an important official, and he was in charge of the treasury, as I mentioned, of Candace. As I was kind of thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, here's this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's been entrusted by God with these material treasures of an earthly kingdom. And in a few moments, as we go through this text, we're going to discover that God is going to entrust him now with eternal treasures of not an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven. And there's just another very small principle here is that it's so important that whether it's in the material world or the physical world or wherever we are, that we're found faithful to the things that God entrusts us with because the Bible says that the one that's faithful with little will be entrusted with more. And this Ethiopian eunuch is going to be about to be entrusted with the greatest treasure that a man or woman can ever participate in. We're also told in, in verse 28 that he was returning home from worshiping in Jerusalem. So evidently this man was a convert to Judaism. He certainly wasn't a Jew. He was an Ethiopian man. And yet he had a heart for the things of the kingdom of God. The Bible actually tells us in the book of Ezekiel that from the land of Cush, men and women would come and worship. Cush is, a, is the old name for Ethiopia. And there's another prophecy that just a few chapters later, uh, as we're going through chapter 53 in a few minutes, in Isaiah 56, I, I want you to listen to this. In fact, if you want to turn to it, you might want to take a moment and flip to Isaiah 56 because I want to read a passage to you that must have proved an incredible comfort to this Ethiopian eunuch who was a convert to Judaism. But in Isaiah chapter 56, beginning in verse 3, this is the word of the Lord speaking. He says, Let no foreigner, the Ethiopian eunuch, who has bound himself to the Lord, in other words, has a heart for the things of the kingdom of God, um, say to himself, or let me read, read that again, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. 
And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Now, if I'm an Ethiopian eunuch who, in essence, is outside the covenant kingdom of God, and I read a passage like that, and I have a heart for the Lord, I'm saying, yes, there's room for me, even for me. And so this eunuch has this text of Isaiah, probably has read this text. In fact, that's what Philip finds this man doing. He's reading the text of the book of Isaiah. Now, what do we know about this man related to his hunger for God? Well, we know several things. This was at least a, a couple of week trip for him to do this. This meant time away from his, from his business. It probably meant on his own dime. That meant he had to pay the expense of the travel and whatever entourage he had with him. He certainly wouldn't have been traveling alone. And so he had to bear that expense. We also know that he had to take time away from the other things in his life. But this guy had a hunger for the things of the kingdom of God. We also know that he bore the expense of the cost of the scroll of Isaiah. That wasn't cheap back then. It was all handwritten and done on vellum and lambskin. And so we've got this man who has decided that knowing God is the adventure that's worth the price, whether it's in time, resources, or anything else that might be sacrificed to seek after God. And it reminded me of Jeremiah 29, 13, where the Lord says, you will seek for me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. So we're talking about a divine appointment, a man who is an Ethiopian eunuch, a convert to Judaism, and has a hunger for God. And my assumption is that this man is crying out to know the Lord. He's crying out and he's seeking after God. There are two aspects of this divine appointment I want to I share with you just briefly. One is from Philip's perspective. The thrill of being a believer and being guided and directed by God into these incredible events, life events, transforming events, and for him to be a partner with God in that process is an absolute wonder and thrill. And that's the part that we have as believers, we, that experience, that joy. On the other hand, the divine appointment of the Ethiopian eunuch is very different because he's crying out to God and he doesn't know that a divine appointment is about to take place. He's not been sent there. God has strategically placed him. He had no idea. The sovereignty of God just worked it out that he was in the right place at the right time. God knew where this guy was. And his heart cry is, God, I want to know you. God, I don't understand this text about the Messiah. I don't understand this text about this suffering servant. And so he's crying out to God. And in that moment, a divine answer is coming. Now, God doesn't send some, some guy that doesn't have anything to do with his time. He doesn't send somebody that, that's been, you know, sitting around on his hands. He sends one of the most powerful evangelists in the New Testament church at that time yanks him away from very fruitful, productive ministry and sends that man on a dusty, barren, wilderness road to meet the heart cry of this Gentile. I'll tell you what that does for me is it makes me realize 
how precious you are to God. <laughs> it makes me realize how precious I am to God that one person crying out to God and all the resources of heaven come down to meet that need for the man or woman that cries out to God. I look at that and I think, what a God we have. What a Savior. And these two men, are, their lives are intersecting. It looks human, but it's divine. And it's the same with us if we choose to live that kind of a life. Well, verse 29 tells us that something interesting. The Holy Spirit now instructs Philip. We got an angel of the Lord in verse 26, and now in verse 29, the Holy Spirit's speaking. What's going on? Well, I think simply this. In the Old Testament, when God wanted to intervene and communicate in a supernatural way to his servants, he most often used an angel. In the New Testament, a great transition is taking place because now, because of the book of Acts and, the, and the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit now is residing in the hearts of men. He's our comforter, our tutor, our teacher, our leader, the one that guides us to a fuller understanding of the revelation of Jesus Christ and his purpose and his will and all these things. And now the Holy Spirit is entering into the scene. The Holy Spirit was very busy, active in the whole Old Testament. But now he's taking on a more visible role, a more tangible role in the life of believers. And there's this transition that's taking place from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from angels speaking to now the Holy Spirit speaking. And even for Philip, he's experiencing this transition. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him and guides him and says, I want you to go to that chariot and I want you to stand next to it. I read that and I think, well, maybe there were multiple chariots. Maybe there were several. Maybe there was a wagon here and a, some people on a donkey there. I don't know. But he says, I want you to go to that chariot and I want you to just stand next to it. Now that's a really, a kind of a discomforting thing because the, the, the treasure for all of Ethiopia would have been in a very plush little chariot. I doubt if Philip was a very rich man. And so he was commanded to go up. Just even approaching a chariot like that might have been a little bit risky. It's like, don't get too close. Why are you standing there? He might have had a little entourage of guards. I don't know. But nonetheless, to just walk up to somebody is a little discomforting. Has God ever done that with you? Just told you, I want you to go and talk to that person. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't know what to say. I don't even know them. I've had that happen so many times, and a lot of times it happens when I go running on the beach. One of the reasons I like to run on the beach is because I get these divine appointments all the time. I, I'm, I'm around people. When I run up in my neighborhood, I'm not around that many people. But when I run, uh, you know, on the beach, there's all kinds of people. And in the past, when I was a younger Christian, I'd be running along the beach, and, I'd, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, I'd be worshiping or memorizing scripture, which is what I like to do when I run. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the, the Holy Spirit would say, go back to that person and tell them about me. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I don't, they're going to think I'm an absolute kook. You know, I'm not going to do that. And then I'd go home and I'd feel really convicted. And I'd say, give me another try. I want to get this right, you know. And so I'd go out the next time and he'd say, okay, go and talk to that person. And it was just like a little awkward. I didn't even really know what to say. And, I, and I'd run past him and I'd be in this little wrestling match with God. I'm sure that you know what I'm talking about. I'd be wrestling with God about, you know, what, what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do, and just go back. I don't even know this. And so I, I just, I run back and it's obvious that something's up because, you know, I ran past and now I'm all of a sudden running back and I'm stopping, you know. And so God doesn't tell me what to say. He just says, go back and stay by this person. And I'm like, okay. And so... 
I know it sounds kind of funny, but I've actually just tell people, you know, I just want you to know I'm a Christian. I was running past you. I feel like God called me to, uh, to stop and come back and talk to you. I think this is a divine appointment. I'm not quite sure what you need, but if you tell me what you need, I want to pray for you because there's something that God wants to do in your life. And I'll just tell them straight up like that because I don't have any idea. I mean, I can't just come up and say, well, how are you doing today? I mean, didn't you just run by? What are you doing standing next to me? You know, you sweaty, you know. So I just get right to the point and say, look, I don't know why I'm here, but God told me to come back and talk to you. So I want to talk to you. Is there some way I can bless you? And I know it sounds completely bizarre, but I've had so many incredible encounters with people and times of prayer where either Christians have fallen away from God or someone's seeking God or someone's in crisis and they're just like, they've been praying that God would meet the need. And, and here this, you know, this goofy, sweaty howly runs by and I come back and, and God appointed me for that time. And so Philip is instructed to go. I can see Philip in his mind saying, you know what, I'm not going to go next to that chariot. But he doesn't do that, does he? He just simply goes right up. Why? I think because Philip had lived a lifestyle of practice in the art of obedience. And he didn't question. He had learned by faith to trust God and to believe God for these instructions that God would tell him what to do next. He didn't need to know. Abraham didn't need to know when he left his family where to go. God would take him. He left anyway. That's one of the big stumbling blocks in my life, and maybe yours too, is that I'm, I'd like to know, you know, okay, just clue me in so I can be completely on board and understand the process and where you're going with all this because then I can completely cooperate and be excited about it. And God says, no, I want you to be excited about it simply because I'm telling you to do it. You'll get excited later when you see what happens from this act of obedience on your part but I want to teach you how to walk by faith and not by sight. And so Philip goes and gets near this chariot. Here's another very simple principle of evangelism, by the way, is that you've got to get near the people you want to talk to. You've, you've got to participate in their life. You've got to have meals with them. You've got to do projects with them. You've got to play with them. You've got to be with them. And, and so Philip, just a very simple principle of evangelism, in, in essence, you've got to get near their chariot. And you've got to kind of stick to it. In fact, in the Greek, it says stick like glue. That's what that word stay near means. It's like to adhere. Don't leave. Stay right there. That's where you need to be. And so Philip immediately obeys. He runs up to the chariot and he hears this guy reading the book of Isaiah. One of the things that I like about this little aspect of this text is that up until now, Philip has been given divine instruction every step of the way. But once he got near the chariot, there weren't any more instructions. God didn't tell him, hey, ask the guy a question. Hey, do this. Hey, do that. Why don't you make your face like this? Why don't you use your hands like that? Why don't you talk like this? He doesn't do any of that. He simply says, go there to that chariot and stick like glue to it. Don't move. In essence, God's saying, Philip, you'll know what to do next. So when God has these divine appointments, he gives us a part and he takes his role as well. His role is to get us to that divine intersection and then he gives us the words at the time but, but a lot of times it's just kind of common sense. And so Philip does something very interesting here. He's just making observation. So he's walking along with this chariot, running along. I'm not sure, probably the chariot slowed down for Philip. And now he's walking along and he simply just listens to this guy reading and he's making observation. You know, one of the things that I, I like to do when I go to people's homes is, uh, and you know, for, for those of you where I've been able to come to your house or we've been together or whatever, uh, I just like to, I, I'm like, I, I immediately go to the wall with all the pictures. 
You know, I'm like, what, what, what's this? Who are these people up here? Do you have a photo album? You know, I'm like, where are you from? And tell me your background. And I just like to get to know people. And you'll learn an enormous amount of, uh, about people when you simply take time to make some observations. And Philip made some observations. So how does this translate into our lives when we're wanting to, to share the Lord with somebody? Well, sometimes it's as simple as recognizing that someone is having a hard day at work. And, and they come and they're just not quite themselves. They're not cheery. They're not happy. They're, they're, uh, they seem distracted. And you can be completely consumed with your own life and say, well, they're having a bad day. I hope they get it together because they're annoying me. Or you can say, wow, could this be a divine appointment? And go up to the person and just say, you know what? I just noticed that you're not quite yourself today. Are you okay? Anything I can do? Can I pray for you? And all of a sudden, this divine appointment might op open up. How about a friend that's going through a divorce? How about a friend that's got an illness? How about a person that's going through some sort of financial crisis or some transition in life? And they're right there. They're your neighbor. They're your friend. How about them working on some project and you seeing it? These are all aspects in which we as believers can make observation and God gives us that faculty and that, that ability to use that gift of observation and simply use it to advance the kingdom of God. And so that's what Philip does, is he simply observes. And that's what Paul says in Colossians 4, 2 through 4. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And then he goes on to talk about evangelism in that context. So we need to be a people who are praying for opportunity and then watching for the door to open. For that, it takes observance. It takes watching and praying and waiting for those open doors. And then he asks them a question. He simply says to the guy, do you know what you're reading? Now, Philip was a lot smoother than I am uh, because I've already told you how I approach people I don't know. It's like an angel of God sent me and, you know, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and I don't know why I'm here, but there's got to be a reason for this. So here I am. What can I do for you, you know? And that's a little awkward. But Philip just real naturally comes up and says, hey, what are you reading? You know, he could have gone up and said, hey, you know what? You Ethiopian Gentile dog, you're going to hell unless you come to Christ, you know? But he doesn't do that. He just simply says, hey, you know, I hear you reading something that sounds like the Bible. What, what, are, you, what are you actually reading? And, uh, and again, a very simple principle here when it comes to evangelism is the importance and the value of asking questions. And let me back up a little bit and say that this isn't just an issue of evangelism. This is an issue of knowing how to become a friend. Asking questions is one of the most important characteristics and qualities of good communication and good friendship. If you've ever been around somebody that just talks incessantly and never asks a question, you know that that's probably not a very good friend. You might get along with them, you might appreciate qualities about them, but they're not the kind of person you want to just go hang out with for you know, uh, every chance you get. That kind of person is a person who takes an interest in your life. That's the kind of person that most of us enjoy being with. When you, we ask questions, we're expressing genuine interest in someone else's life. When we ask questions, we know how to speak to and respond to genuine needs in that person's life. And when we ask questions, it creates an environment of true friendship and trust. It really opens hearts and opens doors. I, I want to give you a little challenge this week. And you can do this with unbelievers or believers. It doesn't really make any difference. But I want to give you a challenge that when you come into the next conversation that you have, maybe even after this service, I want to challenge you, instead of rattling off information and events and stories that you have on your heart, is to make a point in any meaningful conversation. I'm not talking about just, hi, how are you kind of thing, but I'm talking about 
a conversation that's going to last a couple of minutes, is to ask at least maybe two or three open-ended questions. Open-ended meaning that there isn't a yes or no answer. So you can't say, you know, are you going to watch the football game today? That's, that's a yes or no. But, you know, what was your week like? That's an open-ended question where there's not a yes or no, but the person gets a chance to share a bit. I want to challenge you to consider doing that. And, and I think what you'll discover if you aren't already doing that kind of a, of a uh, communication style in your relationships with others yet, if you begin doing that, you're going to find that the door of friendship opens wide. And it's not just with believers that that's the case, but also with unbelievers. And so Philip didn't, you know, come charging in there with statements about what he thought the Ethiopian needed to know, but he took time to find out where this guy was at and what he was thinking about simply by asking a question after having observed what this man was doing. Well, in verse 31, we, we have the Ethiopian's response. He basically says, hey, I need an explanation. I don't know what, I'm reading from this particular passage, but I really don't understand what I'm reading. And so he invited Philip to come up with him and sit in the chariot, and he tells him that he just so happens to be reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. Well, that is the premier passage in the entire Old Testament of Messianic prophecy. That is it. That is the pinnacle of Messianic prophecy. There are many other prophecies in the Old Testament, but that is the pinnacle of the prophetic word of who this servant would be. But it was a suffering servant. And for this Gentile Ethiopian, he didn't understand who this person was. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the man without the Spirit can't accept the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. So he could have possibly not understood just because he wasn't born again. He didn't have the Spirit of Christ living in him. But even the Jews didn't understand who Jesus was because they didn't have the Spirit living in them, in the, in them either. Because the Jews couldn't, they couldn't connect the dots between the prophecies that depicted Jesus, this Messiah, as the great conqueror, the hero, the champion of Israel, the one that would once again take the throne of David and sit on it and rule the people of Israel and bring safety and peace again with Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah 53 describes him as suffering and dying. And they couldn't connect that. It didn't make any sense. They were puzzled. And this Ethiopian eunuch was puzzled as well. And so verse 35 tells us that Philip used that very passage to enlighten the man. Do you see how all this went? Philip didn't come charging in with the gospel and just preach the gospel. No, there was a process. The Holy Spirit led him. There was this divine encounter, this divine appointment. Philip made some observations. He asked a couple of questions and the man himself told him what he needed. Do you see how this works? So when we are in these opportunities, these divine moments that God gives us a chance to share the fa our faith, we don't have to worry about trying to figure the person out and hoping that God's going to tell us everything about their life so we can nail it, you know, and, and be a prophet. No. He says, I'm going to set it up, but I just want you to be observant. I want you to care for this person. I want you to love this person. I want you to take an interest in this person's life and find out what their need is. And so Philip did. And the result is, is that the man himself said, this is what I need. I need some help understanding this particular passage, which just so happened coincidentally to be about the Messiah. I'm being very facetious, of course, because I don't believe in coincidence. I already told you that. This was a divine appointment. 
And so Philip used that very passage to teach him and to proclaim to him and to preach to him the good news of Jesus Christ. Euangelizo, good news, the preaching and declaration of the truth about who Christ is. So Philip was prepared. He was ready for this. He was an experienced evangelist. Most of us here would have to say we're not experienced evangelists. Probably many of us, if we were presented with a situation like this and we knew that God was going to set this divine appointment up and that we had to ask these certain questions and the guy would ask us for help and he would say basically, what do I need to do here? I don't understand who this, who this suffering servant is. M many of us here would, even with all of that and knowing there's, there's this divine connection of the human and divine happening right here on earth in our midst with us involved, we still might shy away. Why? Because we don't feel confident that we know how to share the gospel with someone and take them to the scriptures to explain how they can be saved. And because of that, we don't even want to get in a conversation with somebody about, you know, what they believe or how they feel or how we can help them or what we can pray for because we don't feel confident to be able to share the gospel. So, in less than five minutes, I'm going to teach you how to share the gospel using a very simple method called the Romans Road. Many of you are familiar with this. There are five texts in the book of Romans that will help you take this person on a walk, very simple walk, to salvation if their heart is ready. And I've got those verses listed for you right in your notes. The first deals with the problem. And you might want to list these little headings next to those verses if you want to. The first is the problem. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every man, every woman is guilty and it separates us from God. That's our problem. What's the consequence? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So we've all sinned. The consequence, Romans 6.23, is that we have a penalty due us of death, physical death, but also spiritual death, which leads to separation from God. The remedy, number three, Romans 5.8, but God showed his love for us in this. Christ laid down his life for us. That's the remedy. In the midst of our sinfulness, while we were still sinners, the Bible says Christ died for us and gave himself up for us. And so that's the remedy, is Romans 5.8, that he showed his love even in our sinful condition by laying down the life of his son in exchange for our sin and our life. Well, there's a responsibility because when Christ died on the cross, not everyone automatically is saved. So Romans 10.9 tells us what our responsibility is if we want to reap the benefit of this gift of God in his son dying on the cross. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So confessing, acknowledging who Jesus is, calling him Lord, that you're supreme commander of, the, of my life, and I believe that you are indeed the son of God, risen from the dead. The Bible says that person will be saved. And then Romans 10, 13, the result. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, five verses. You've got them. That's all you need. Some of you are able to share more than that because you know the word better. Wonderful. All of us should be growing in our knowledge of the word, but you've got five verses that equip you to be able to lead someone to Christ. Just your testimony is enough. But now you have five verses to help sequentially take a person through the steps necessary to have a relationship with God. 
I want to take just a minute to talk about verse 37 of chapter 8 because if you've got a King James Bible, as I read, you are probably wondering, hey, what happened, you know? Didn't read verse 37. In the NIV, you'll see a little textual note pointing you down to the bottom of your page or many of the other translations as well, not just NIV. And it'll say that in many earlier manuscripts, this verse didn't exist. It's a, it's a verse of clarification. In essence, what it says is that Philip says to the man, if you believe with all your heart, you can be saved or you can be baptized. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the, the Christ, the Son of God. And most manuscripts that are older, the earlier manuscripts, the ones that are closer to the time of when these texts were written, don't have that verse. And because of that, uh, a number of translations don't include that. It doesn't really add to or detract from the Word of God. It's just a point of clarification that this eunuch was understanding what was involved, that he said, I do believe these things that you have said. And as a result, uh, the official responded immediately to his instruction. Evidently, Philip, in the course of teaching, had taught him about baptism as well and the importance of that as the first step of faith and obedience in a new relationship with Christ. And so he said, hey, I'd, I'd like to get baptized right away. And he stopped the chariot and he said, hey, there's some water. Let's do it right now. Is there anything preventing me from doing this? And so they got out of the chariot and he was baptized. This outward sign of an inward commitment. And then something absolutely remarkable happens. I mean, this is already all remarkable. Philip must have just been going, oh, I just love, love these divine appointments. Even though he left this incredible ministry back in Samaria, he was like on the edge of God's work. He was willing to go wherever God wanted him to go because he wanted to be on the cutting edge of interaction with the mighty God of the universe to advance God's purposes. And so he does that. He baptizes this guy. They come up out of the water and the text says that immediately, suddenly, Philip was taken away. And he ended up in a town, Azotus, which is 20 miles away, immediately transported to this place. In, an, in a blink, he's gone. And the text tells us that the Ethiopian eunuch was like, you know, what happened to the guy, you know? But what I love about it is that he's not like, oh no, I've lost my mentor, I've lost my teacher, I've lost the only person that was my connection to God. No, he was like rejoicing. He was like, oh well, God. You've received me. God, you've accepted me. God, you're working in my life. God had answered this Ethiopian's prayer and he knew it was God, not a man, that had designed this encounter. And so he was rejoicing. And uh, church history tells us that this Ethiopian eunuch, this, the first man that we know by name or by his character, by his position, the first black man to come to Christ in Ethiopia, went back and evangelized Ethiopia and led just a ton of people to Christ and was used mightily by God. So he went on with what God called him to do. But I like the last part of this verse and as we wrap up in verse 40. Philip appeared at Azotus, it says, where he traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Why do I like this? I like what the text doesn't say. Because Many people who have had an experience like this that have leadership or, you know, recognized leaders within the body of Christ, nationally, internationally, locally, whatever it is, they have an experience like this and what do they want to do right away? They want to write a book and go on tour. 
They got to go to churches. They're not doing ministry anymore because they're so busy talking to churches about their, their experience. Then they've got to have a conference and a seminar on how you too can experience time travel, you know? And that now it's uh, taken another step. It's like, what, you're saved? That's wonderful, but do you know how to time travel? You know, can you move from place to place in an instant, in a blink of an eye? You know, this is how silly, you know, our culture and sometimes even the Christian culture has become where we have these unique God-given divine appointments, and then we want to repeat them over and over and over because we just think they're so, you know, cool. What I find Philip doing is nothing of the kind. What he does simply is he finds himself in Azotus, and he simply goes back to work, beating the streets, preaching the gospel. That's how he started out. He was preaching the gospel in Samaria. Had this incredible divine encounter, gets you know, supernaturally transported to another place 20 miles away. God plops him down right there and he says, well, Acts 17, 26, even before it was written, he said, this must be the exact time and location and place that God wants me to be. What does God want us to do wherever, wherever we are? He wants us to preach the gospel. He wants us to tell people about Christ. It's hard work. It takes courage. It takes faith. It takes a mindset for the kingdom of God takes a knowledge that this is a precious commodity that God has given us, this very simple message of life for sinners separated from God. And he says, now I want you to go do it. So wherever you are, the command is preach the gospel, in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, love, encourage, build up, strengthen, minister to, be friends with people all around you. That's the calling that we have. Let me finish by sharing a, just a brief application of all these things in concluding. Number one is that you're here by divine appointment this morning. The fact that you're on this island, the fact that you're attending this service, the fact that we're going over this particular text, the fact that God has put the applications and all these things on my heart that he did and that I've shared with you this morning, these are all a part of his Incredible, sovereign work. Why is he doing it? Well, because I believe he's doing it in answer to his will, his purpose, but also the cry, heart cry of you. He knows what you cry for. He knows what you want. Even if you've not verbalized it to him, he knows that you want to live an abundant life. And so he's answering that and he's giving you an opportunity this morning to look at life completely differently from this moment on. My prayer is that you'll never as you leave this parking lot, never look at another driver, another car, another person in front of you, another person standing in line. You'll never look at your spouse or your children or your friends or your parents or your grandchildren or your co-workers the same ever, ever again. And that every person you encounter, you realize out of all the strands of human history, they're all converging at this moment and what seems to be just like a happenstance, a coincidence, a, a moment of, well, it could be anywhere, anytime, is actually sovereignly prepared by God. And he puts it in front of you and he says, want to live an exciting life? Then follow me. I don't want to be bored in my Christian life. I have to admit, I've had times where I was before I understood the principles I've shared with you today. But I get up every day and I'm thinking, okay, I got a plan. I know kind of what I want to do, but feel free to interrupt at your, at your desire. Anything you want to do, I'm ready. And I just can't wait. In fact, I actually prefer the interruptions because I'm more convinced that God's in those than even sometimes in my own planning. 
The Christian life is meant to be an adventure. If it's less than that for you, I encourage you, I invite you, I exhort you to step in to the adventure by seeing your life as it really is, a divine appointment from God. It could be that there's someone here today that has never received Christ. You're kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch. You have a heart for God. Uh, you desire to know God. You're kind of around the edges of that, and you're not quite sure how to enter in. If that's the case, then I would suggest to you that today may be the big divine appointment for you, <laughs> that God actually brought you here to hear the gospel, that you are a sinner. You've done wrong things, that there is a penalty for that. It's death. But God stepped in and sent his son to take his death to replace your death, to give you life. And that all you have to do is to believe and receive that Jesus is indeed who he says he was, the son of God, and to acknowledge that he rose from the dead and that he's the Lord of the universe and the Bible says you will be saved. So it could be that your divine appointment today is to experience that. For the rest of us that are believers, the only thing I can assume is that God wants you to have divine appointments this week and he wants you to be able to fully enter in. And so here are just a few things that I'd like to share in closing. Number one, if you want to experience this, be obedient to what you already know to do because God is not going to send you on, a, on an extracurricular mission if you're not already taking care of what you know you need to do. That may mean some of you may need to get some things right with the Lord today. A good time, especially since we're going to be having communion. The second thing is just determine to be available. Let God interrupt you. Yield your life to him. Surrender everything. Thirdly, be observant. Watching carefully for the leading of the Holy Spirit. Listening carefully. And fourthly, be bold. Be courageous. Be strong. Be fearless in Christ. You have a life-giving message that your friends and family so desperately need to hear. They need someone with the courage to step up to the plate and deliver it with love, with gentleness, and with respect. Ephesians 2.10 For you are God's workmanship. You're his poem created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. I can hardly wait to hear what you tell me next week as we talk in fellowship. If you have divine appointments, call me this week. I want to hear about them. I'm excited. I'm going to be praying for you all week. Would you pray for me too? Let's pray for each other that God is going to let us enter into the divine. It's already really there. We maybe just haven't recognized it. I pray that that now, as a result of our time today, has changed. Father, we thank you for our time together. Lord, we, we are so delighted to know you. I can hardly wait for conversations after the service. I'm enjoying the divine appointment of this moment. And Father, I'm asking that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would come to Christ this morning. If you're that kind of person, a seeker, but have never asked Christ into your heart, given him complete control of your life, I just want you to raise your hand if you'd like that this morning. Just slip it up quickly, right where you are, so I can see it. We're going to just pray for you. Is there anyone here, you've never received Christ, you've never surrendered yourself to his authority and lordship, but you would like to today? Is there anyone like that here today? Anyone here? Okay. I don't see any hands, so I'm trusting that that means that we're all believers. I'm praying for that. For the rest of us, are you ready to just sell out? Are you ready for just complete, you know, on-the-edge adventure with God? If you want that, I just want you to raise your hand where you are because I want to pray for you. Many hands going up. You want to be right where God is. You want to do right what 
be right in that, in that sweet spot of being in the right place at the right time, doing and saying the right things for the advancement of God's purposes in this world. So many of you desire that. Lord, you see our hearts, you see our hands. And Father, we're crying out this morning that you would have your way. God, we surrender ourselves. We ask for forgiveness for the many times that we have heard your voice, that still small voice, and have gone the other direction. And Father, we confess it. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. We can leave those behind and now move on and say, God, we're ready by your grace. Help us to walk. Help us to have power. Help us to believe. Fill us with whatever we need to accomplish and carry out your will this week. And God, I can hardly wait to hear the testimonies of the saints coming back and reporting what you have done in and through them as they walk with you this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.